Welcome to Relatable. This is your host, Teresa Freeman. As I've mentioned before, one of the things I love about doing this podcast is I get a chance to speak with old friends. In this episode, I speak with Greg Clow. Greg and I went to high school together. We had this great opportunity to catch up, and he is now the owner of Chainbridge Financial Group. We learn how Greg has navigated his career. He started in big business and now owns and operates his own successful financial services company. In addition to learning a bit about what it takes to be successful in finance, we talk in depth about his recent stage four cancer diagnosis. Greg is open and honest about his cancer battle, including having to be his own advocate and what it feels like to go through treatment and how he stays positive and motivated to move forward. Enjoy this episode. All right, so let maybe just start with what's maybe a day in the life of Greg Cloud. So I'm a small business owner focus financial planning group. Yeah. So I offer the group health benefits and the 401k as Got a it. caveat. But my main goal is to build a relationship with the owner. So all my group, the majority of my groups are 50 employees and under. So small groups, a lot of them are 10 and under. There's so many in that yeah. neighborhood and there's no... Nobody really focusing on that. And they need a lot of help. Yeah. Usually at that size, 10 employees or less, you know, their their accountant is, has a couple different hats. Right. Or their HR person, I should say, is the accountant, is the... Their COO, know. right? Which is yeah. now all things like everything but the kitchen sink, really, for those kind of companies, right? Yeah, really, when they get to 50, that's when they start really establishing themselves. Right. But it's all kind, which is, makes it so interesting. I have... A drywall company. Mm-hmm. I have a cemetery. <laughs> I have the lawyers, doctors, of course, landscapers. I think you told me this the other day when we were talking. I asked you how many clients do you have at one time. I would think I was really surprised that your number was like a lot, right? You have a lot at once that you manage. I have about 120 clients right now. We I review the caseload with my assistant. Right. Every Monday, we spend at least an hour and a half going through it. Like right, right now, we have 27 cases going on at one time. So that's a lot of balls in the air. And yeah. It's either you know someone needs insurance policy, a rollover 401k, setting up the group health, or setting up the 401k. That's really the four areas. How do you prioritize? That's always been, I feel like, one of those difficult leadership questions when you start to have more and more authority, which is a good thing, and you delegate authority, but you still have your own work that you have to manage, and then being able to prioritize that such that you're paying attention to the right things. Yeah. So do you have a, any tips or tricks for that? Well, I, I put them in different categories, uh, stages. Yeah. I, I stage the actual activity, actual opportunity. With that client, so like each client. stage they're at. It's different. And then at the bottom two stages, I unload it to my assistant to do the process. Basically, the end is the actual process. Right. You know, first is doing a proposal, having them review it. There's different stages. How long have you had your own business? Started as an advisor in 95, but I was always with a large organization until 06. In 06, I went out on my own, but I attached myself to an established advisor because it was an independent world. I was, I was scared. Right. So right. this was a multi-million dollar producer. So I attached myself to him for a year and a half. And then in January of 08, I went out and started my own office. Well, okay, so I have two questions about that. One, were you intentional about attaching yourself to him given that you were making that leap? So it was like a strategic decision that you were leaving obviously the comfort and security of a big organization and so you found this person that you knew would help you to then create your own one learn from him i'm guessing in terms of how you run your own business like that but then two his client roster being able to partner so that was intentional yeah and i had a lot of experience in the life insurance industry that he didn't have so he brought me in as Um, the insurance specialist 
but at the same time, I was learning all the investment processes. And you're an independent, you know, there's no management, there's no anything, so you're, you're everything you're out there. <laughs> what made you or what drove you to go out on your own? Like when I think about financial people or financial advisors or people that are in that space, typically they're pretty risk averse. And the comfort of that security of being in a big organization is hard to leave. So what drove you to make that move? And what did you consider in making that move? Just a lot of factors. Just because you were maturing in the business, you didn't need all the overhead that you were seeing, you know, layers of management. They give you a, a very stringent three-year management process when you start out. So that was in the late 90s. Right. And then for the next six years, I had these layers of management that I didn't really need. So you're building your practice, plus my practice grew to just being both retirement planning and benefit side. So it was growing differently than the management that I was at. So I was at mainly a, a life insurance office. So I was growing into the investments, into the retirement plan business, into the investments so I needed something bigger essentially like you were saying you were growing beyond the business and so you wanted more market opportunity for yourself yeah essentially yeah and had anyone like for you to make that jump were you married then yes and had kids then yes and so how scary was it to do that and were you was it like a family decision <laughs> or because you had found that person and you attached to yourself to that person the risk wasn't as big. Right, it seemed like a good transition. Yeah. It seemed like a really good transition because I had someone there that I could watch and learn from, but I was my own entity. I was kind of just attached to the, the office. Did he pay you a salary or it was like whatever you... No, he took a percentage of my gross. Got it. Which gave me incentive to go out to... <laughs> to go out on your yeah. own. And so that was a year and a half later? Yeah. And how scary was that? So scary because it was 2008, right, when the right. market just tanked. Yes. So it was before that because that was towards the end of 08. So I was so excited, though, starting my own office. The blood was pumping. <laughs> the juices were flowing. So it was yeah. great. And, um, and actually, since I did have both sides of the business, I think that's really important, which a lot of advisors miss out on. They don't have do the insurance side and the investment side. Because of course, when investments go up and they go down, if you're tied directly to the market, it really hurts. Right. I talk to people all the time. Because a lot of people in the independent world are independent investment advisors. Right. They don't do the insurance side of the business. All right, so I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna, you're gonna talk to me like I'm four years old because I wanna make sure that I really understand what you do. So I'm a company, I have 30 people. I already have some form of benefit support. So I have like healthcare options, let's say, for my people. Mm -hmm. And let's say I've really not done anything yet to build 401k opportunities, right? So so that's like an open space where you would come, you would come and tell me, I can manage your 401k for you, I can set up a plan for you and your employees, and people will start contributing and you will manage that. So as I hire people and they want to initiate their 401k, you or someone in your group would then be interacting with them. That part I understand. Explain the insurance part. What are you offering? The 401k is like investment funds and opportunities, right? right? So I, I, I'm like telling you four years old. So then explain the insurance piece to me. So for the small business owner, of course, you got personal insurance. They use Correct. Their family, so you want to put that in place. And then on top of that, if there's a partnership agreement, you put together, and it's basically just life insurance policies for right. each partner to pay off the other person's spouse, the other partner's spouse. I see. They're called buy-sell agreements. You might have heard that term. I think That's, I have. It's basically buying out the other person's beneficiary so the person that's in the business who hasn't passed away can continue the business, but they pay off. That's like an insurance plan policy, like yeah. a life policy. Okay, got it. And then there's the uh, deferred comp policies, which is deferred compensation, but they're in the, uh, the form of insurance policy. A lot of people don't know that. Right. The term life insurance is really a stigma to it, so right. they call it deferred comp, but it's actually, it, which is based off of life insurance policy. So that's a whole other 
Concession. Another way that I can save money, put away money for my future, in addition to a 401k, like more traditional yeah, on top of. Got it. Le uh, leveraging the business for the owner. Aha. Uh -huh. So what would you say now that you've been at this for a long time, if like in terms of being an entrepreneur, what do you love about it the most? I mean, just the variety of it. Yeah. And you were talking before, I was listening to your other podcast, how it all comes back to sports. Yeah. We do have a lot of sports people that have been gracious enough to speak with us. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all, you know, treating it, it's very, you got to treat it like a game because you're trying to get new opportunities, develop the relationships. It's all about the enduring relationships. So it's, if you treat every day, that, that's what makes it challenging and fun to me. It's just building those relationships, seeing if you can build those relationships. When you say that, it's interesting. When you talk about that in terms of building clients and building those relationships, is it always towards an end goal of somehow monetizing that relationship? Yes. How do you do that such that the person you're courting doesn't feel Right. I think this is like a quintessential yeah, people skill, right? Or an aptitude or a characteristic that, frankly, we need to beef up ourselves here at TFA, which is how do I, I feel passionate about something. I know I have something worthy to offer you. So it's not like I'm trying to peddle something that I don't think is of quality, nor I'm assuming do you, like what you're offering is of value. But there's something about that exchange of I'm building a relationship with you solely to monetize that. You know that and I know that. So how do you get around that? How do you... Well, that's not a bad thing. You're making it sound like it's a bad thing. Right. It's part of... They're meeting with you because they have a need. Right. You know, you don't go in... I don't meet with people that don't have needs. Aha. Uh -huh. There's... Or, you know, I can feel it out before we sit down and discuss it. But usually a need comes up, arises for us to sit down and have a formal meeting. So we're focusing on the need. And for you, in terms of monetizing it, not like you are monetizing it for yourself, but you also monetizing it for the business, right? There, so right. there is that exchange that's pretty a direct line of... I'll provide these services and here is the value you're going to get from these services, right? So it doesn't, it's maybe not as... If you're clear, instead of tiptoeing around and you see it, I just see myself as a resource, as a resource. I keep reminding myself, I'm a resource to them. What can I do to help them? And you believe that. It's not like yeah. you're just saying that as like shtick. You believe that you are in fact that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So then what about challenges? I mean, you've obviously done this for a long time, so maybe you wouldn't probably go back to working in a bigger organization or being one of many, but what if what are some of the challenges that you face or that you've been through as an entrepreneur? Oh, there's so many. I know. Pick two. <laughs> Pick two. Well, we talked about before about juggling the different, the different the business flow, mm -hmm. which is a constant challenge. So you're constantly opening new doors building relationships. So you've got to constantly, I don't want to sound crude, but you have to have the funnel. You know, it's all right. about keeping the funnel, that activity. Right. And I look at that very closely. I look at the metrics very closely. I make sure I have a certain number of opportunities available and a certain amount of cases that are open. So that keeps my stress level lower because I know that a certain portion is going to come out each month. So I get stressed out when that opportunity pool gets smaller. And you, because of your experience in doing this now for a long time, I'm guessing, you know what that threshold is almost mathematically yeah. where you've seen it proven over and over again. So that might be something too in terms of advice or counsel, like how did you figure that out? Is that a trial and error or is it like three times the number of leads and the work that you need, right? Like is there is it that simple or is it like over time you've figured out based on tr trial and error and how you've been able to manage your Well, in the insurance world, someone studied it for 30 years. Right. So they have the statistical. What about other challenges like when you talked about 08 or between then and now, have there ever been droughts or ever been times where you were really worried that you were going to have to 
come up with another plan. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe work at the local grocery yeah. store. I'm trying to think back. It's not really, the ebbs and flows have gotten a lot lower. At first, it really does ebb and flow a lot. But they, they describe it as a, a ski slope by the businesses like that. Mm-hmm. So you need five years and then it starts moving. But it's really key to have centers of influence. Uh, there's some accountants that I know really well, and we refer business back and forth. So that's you just have different avenues like that. It's really helpful. What would you say? This is personal <laughs> interest. What would you say between your year one and year five? What's the toughest year? It's like two or three. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Okay, that's good. That's good to know. How did you work through that? How? What? What are the like any tools or tips to someone that's in that space where they're questioning the potential versus default, right? Yeah, the problem is everyone looks at the end point. They don't look at the activity up front. It's all activity-based, so you have to have a process. All about daily process at that point. It's all about... Like incremental. Doing, yeah, doing the daily. You have to have a daily process, and you have to stick to that, and... People are thinking the end point. Oh, that's you know that's the goal. They call a golden egg. Right. right? That right. guy's is loaded. He's you know I'm a friend of him. I'm I'm done. And then of course it never works out. Right. Right. <laughs> Not quite that clean. Not that Would you way. say you're someone that and you talked about this before, like the sports analogy, that you enjoy the process? It seems like you've enjoyed the journey, whether it's going really well or whether you're having difficulties like the the actual building and recovering and figuring it out you seem to like that is that yeah, true I do like to figure it out and it seems like it almost happens I don't want to say magically but if you focus on it things do happen things happen do you think it's like energy begets energy yes that's your yeah I just think it's super cool very if you're say strange but it's it's very uh interesting how once you focus on things and really focus on it, things develop. Right. You can make things develop. Yeah. Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates, your one-stop shop for soft skills development, speaking, coaching, and workshops. If you'd like to hire Teresa, visit www.teresafreemanassociates.com for more information. You go to Mount St. Mary's, you're playing sports, and do you know you want to do finance then or no? I knew I wanted to do business. The marketing class really spoke to me. Mm. Um, that was so, it came so easy to me, and I did really well in it. But then when I came out of college, it seems like today everyone knows what they want to do, but back then it was yeah. wide open. Yeah, it was wide open. And we also graduated in a recession. Yeah. So there was like no jobs. Right. So I took a staff accounting job with a trade organization, ah. and I saw that there was no advancement. person in front of me had been there forever, and he was not going anywhere. So I did that for about two years, and then one of my brothers married into the family of an insurance company, so I had a little entree mm-hmm. to go in. So I stepped into that world. And that was kind of it? Yeah. So that's an interesting thing too around, like we talk about it on here sometimes, just network and obviously networking for you is a huge aspect of your business. But even then, like being afforded that opportunity, were you intentional to know like that was a really good opportunity for you and you were certain that or really intentional about how you were going to go about that job in terms of showing up and doing well and being right? Like Because now you're affiliated with someone in your family, right? You don't want to F it up. Yeah. So I saw the lifestyle. So again, I was thinking the end point. Ah. And of course, it doesn't work that way. You got to do the process. And they actually, they promised me it was financial planning, but it wasn't. It was very product driven. I was there for three years and then I moved on to a financial planning firm. So it was insurance based, but it was mm-hmm. more financial planning. But the first three years was all products selling, sending out mailers and calling. Really? It was. Did you hate imagine it? Imagine doing that now. No, There's no way I you know. can't. Like who mails anything? It was a short. Yeah. It was. Did you hate it? But there was twelve of us, 
in our 20s, it was a lot of camaraderie, yeah. uh, which was really fun, but it was, it was pretty brutal. So you, at that time, and then even I think as you're talking, like there was always something else that you wanted to do to get to a certain point, and was it lifestyle driven? or going out on your own and then is there any point in which you're like I've sort of arrived where I'm still looking for that yeah which I think there's so much opportunity out there it really gets me agitated (laughs) agitated why agitated because I'm like it's out there I have to go get it where should I go so it's always at this point in the career you're just looking to up your clientele and just to with more established people. I hope that doesn't sound crash. Well, no, but it's curious because I wonder if that's, let's do as a hunting analogy, and I'm not a hunter, but let's just say that the more difficult it is to kill something when you do, there's some feeling of fulfillment that you were able to figure out that skill at that level, right? So when I think about what you're talking about, is it in part like, I've been able to manage this type of client, this type of service, and now I want to challenge myself to do something harder, more complex, and then as you get that, then it creates more interest to do, right? Is that the yeah. drive, right? It's less about... But that's, a, that's the drive and the challenge, though, because you're constantly having to learn new things. You're constantly reading, and there's all these different concepts at the... Financial world's changing all the time. Right. So it's a big challenge. Yeah. It's definitely a tough, I mean, it's not my sweet spot for sure, and it seems like a lot you're responsible for and you have to manage. And being responsible for other people's money would be extraordinarily stressful for me. (laughs) I mean, it's taking on a lot, right? Just people and their money. Yeah. Have you had any, like, major, awful blowouts or situations where that might be a good lesson learned for somebody where things went south and you didn't quite know how to handle it? You have a big client and they get bought by another company and then it's gone. Your relationship is gone. They're bought out. They're retiring. It's gone. What can you, you can't do anything about it. You try to build that new relationship, but of course they already have relationships in place. So you just got to transition. That's why you really got to have a good, diverse practice. And I feel like I do have a good, because it doesn't hurt that bad, but it does hurt when you. And is it money, abrupt? Money moves away from you. <laughs> <laughs> Singles here. Um, wait, come back. Um, so is that typically abrupt when that happens, or you know it's coming, and you can plan for it? Or is it? No, it's usually surprise. It's, yeah. Because they get bought, and that's yeah. obviously not. Sometimes you know that they're looking, but other times it happens in two or three months, and you know, so you don't have a lot of warning. Yeah. What about um, you? Have had like we've been catching up recently, and you've had some unexpected challenges, like personally in your life. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about that, because I think there's probably benefit to people hearing about that part of your story and some of the things you've been through. So tell me a little bit about that. Wow, I don't know how uh, to start on that. You know, you want me to start from the beginning? Yeah, start at the beginning. Oh my gosh. So February 19, felt something in my, pressing against my backside. So I figured it was a polyp. So I got the colonoscopy, you know, 48, two years early. Did that, and they said, no, you're fine. Everything good. I was like, I feel like this little sore. It's like an ache, it felt like an acorn. It was in a weird spot. So they're like, all right, well, we'll do a scan for you. And we, they do a scan on a Friday. And then on Monday, they say, come back and come in immediately. Uh, and they said, you have prostate cancer, it's stage four. That's pretty terrifying. Yeah. Like to have that happen almost overnight. Yeah. So what is that like? So to be sitting there hearing that. I said, how long do I have to live? They said, four, four to seven years. That's crazy. Pretty wild. How do you, are you by yourself when you're in that conversation? Or is like your wife with you? Yeah. She's with you? And then is it immediately like how do you address it? Like how do we handle it? Yeah. Just go into like action mode? Yeah, meet with the oncologist. Which oncologist? There seems to be one in Fairfax County. So I wanted to go to a specialist. 
just happens my aunt is a big donor at, at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. So immediately we get plugged in there. We go up to the prostate specialist in Baltimore and they're looking at my file. They're like, well, you seem very young to have get this. Some in their late 70s gets this usually. So And you're like a healthy dude, right? Like healthy yeah. lifestyle, really active. So yeah. it would be odd, right? Like not that that is sort of indiscriminate, but so they said it must be genetic. You must have some kind of uh, mutated gene, defective gene. And they said, do the test. So they said, call this, call this number and get the genetic test. So I called this group in California. They gave me this swab test. I wait to see if I have this mutated gene. And it comes back positive. I have the BRCA2 gene. So they said, well, you're in luck. Our office is targeting that we have this pill that's going to fix that gene. It's the latest and greatest and we'd like you to be in the trial. It's like, sure. Are there any other options for you to consider or it's kind of like, here's three things, like a menu? Well, it's like, like a 12% chance that I had that mutated gene. 12% of people have it. Okay. Prostate. So I was just waiting and that took about a week and a half to get that back. So, and you're hoping for the mutated yeah. gene. So they said, you do have it. And so I started taking this pill. I take, I take four a day, and all my numbers dropped. It went straight down. So it was good from, I started that in March of 19 uh, up until December of 19. Then my numbers started coming back. So they said, oh, it's, start, it's starting to wear off. We need to switch you back to the normal process. In January 2020, I got the shot. They give you the shot that lowers your your testosterone, mm. and that kills the cancer cells in your prostate. That's the only way they found out how to do that since 1960. Wow! I was really leery of you know old therapy from 1960, but that's the only way they figured out how to do it. And I took that shot in January, and it completely wiped it out. It became non-detectable. Wow. So. Did you have side effects when you were on the medicine for a year? Nothing drastic. Just uh, my skin was uh, very sensitive to light. Mm. But I was just taking four pills a day and that was it. So then you got the treatment a year later, the shot. Yeah. The and you're supposed to do that every quarter. It's a three-month shot. They do it right in your gut. Does that make you feel sick at all? Well, I'm yeah, sure as a dude. Sorry. <laughs> but like as a guy, testosterone, right? So what, what does that feel like to have your testosterone? It just makes you kind of weak. Mm -hmm. Not sick, like you don't feel sick? No. And you didn't have to do like chemo or radiation or does that come later? Or you were just do the shot and then it... Well, studies, of, most people just do the shot until it wears off, until the cancer cells become a get around it somehow. So I did the first shot and it completely wiped it out to be undetectable. And so when it came around in April to do the next shot, I was like, I wanna, you know, let's skip. And the doctor agreed and let me skip it. I get tested every month and it's slowly starting to tick back mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. So I'm probably gonna get another shot this Friday. If you have to do this every quarter, is there long-term issues with that? Like if it's keeping it at bay or you, can you take it for the rest of your life every quarter yeah but it does after like two years it starts to affect your bone health uh, your bones become not as strong so i'm going to do radiation this fall yeah and i was surprised you only do that one time oh they say you do it once and that's it you only can do it once hmm. so let me ask as you're going through this so it's like two years now. Like, is it always on your mind? Are you thinking about it all the time? When you've had periods where it's been better, do you can you like let it go, or are you do you just think about it all, not all the time, but you know what I mean? It's like it all just kind of it's always there. But I really dug in on the, all the research. You know, there's so much on the internet. Um, is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, seeing the top doctors across the country. I mean, I study every night for like two hours a night. I was kind of fanatic about it. My wife was starting to get mad at me. I was just really I just want to know exactly that's kind of is that kind of who on. you are though yeah I'm very, like because for the business you have to study a lot right right and uh, but I really studied two to three hours almost every night for the first year so I knew all the best doctors 
specific to prostate. Do you think part of that is control? Like you have to feel like you have some control over it? Oh yeah, Yeah. definitely. Yeah. So I'll just, I'm going to manage this. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to drive it. What kind of things helped you throughout this? Like in terms of keeping you positive or like what are things that you've done that could, that you felt have been therapeutic? Anything? Just doing all the studying. That gave me a lot of confidence. I know that you and your dad went through some treatments together. At what point was he diagnosed and how did that, what was that journey like for you guys? Yeah, it was really surprising. Uh, Three months after I got diagnosed, my father had some symptoms going on and he finally, he's not one to go to the doctor a lot. He got tested and he had prostate cancer also. So we did the same process with him three months later. So he got the genetics test to see if he was BRCA2 positive, like I was. So it was a gene mutation. And we got him on the clinical trial to this pill that that's supposed to fix the t- genetic uh, mutation that you have. Mm-hmm. So I was going up to Baltimore every two weeks now as opposed to every month. And every quarter, we had to do all the scans. Uh, you had to do the full bone scan and MRIs. Um, to see what was going on and so I was really uh, he's not he's 83 he was 83 and um, you know with all my research I was kind of leading the way and sitting in on the appointments and kind of pushing that you really do have to be your own advocate so I was really questioning the doctors of course in a nice way right right but there was a lot of things that if you're not your own advocate that's so important so interesting you say that because I think I'm guilty of the whole, there were certain people growing up that you were supposed to defer to. So for us Catholics, it was priests, right? Priests were like all knowing and they could do no wrong. And obviously there's been some stuff that's come to light, right? About that. Um, And so you just weren't allowed to really question that. And doctors was another one for me. It was like, you, you like, you just defer, you just listen and what they tell you. And not to say that there aren't great doctors out there that make good decisions, but the fact that you're not the only one I've heard that from, that when you have a situation like this or you're diagnosed with something, like you have a responsibility to learn as much as you can and to be empowered to help drive that care, which I think is a great, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know if that's a common understanding. Yeah, so I got diagnosed in March of 2019 and he got diagnosed in June of 2019. So he got on the trial, and as I mentioned, it, um, it stopped, the pill stopped working for me last December, and it stopped working for him in January. And his bone scans, he had it all over in his bones, so yeah. it was a lot more dire for him. They were looking at him a lot closer, but I was pushing to get to other treatments. Luckily, when we both got off the trial, there was a Johns Hopkins uh, next to American University, Sibley Hospital was bought by Hopkins. So the same doctor that we were seeing goes once a week there. So we were able to, you know, that's three and a half miles from my house. So my dad would come down from Gainesville Haymarket and uh, we would go over there uh, starting this year. I was pushing for the other drugs and, and he was having a lot of pain. So he started the radiation and uh, there was some complications with his radiation and then he passed away in May, uh, mid-May this year. You know, that was difficult to be part of that. For sure. And abrupt, right? Because you were thinking we've kind of yeah. not beat it, but you were progressing or able to move through certain phases. So that's really tough. I'm very sorry to hear that. Yeah. So we were just, he was doing the radiation to relieve some pain from his from his back since yeah. he had so many uh, spots on his on his bones and then there were some complications and then he passed away it was it happened like within two days are you like a spiritual religious person any type of meditation more type? now really? <laughs> <laughs> a lot more now really I mean my whole not my whole outlook I am definitely a different stage than I was before really because I grew up going every Sunday Went to parochial elementary school, pretty devout family. Right. But uh, now it's a different level. And is that helpful, do you think? Is it is it like one of those things where because you had that, I mean, you're sitting in that office and he's like telling you 
how dire it is, is it almost that immediate where you start thinking about obviously your own mortality, but also what happens next and maybe maybe I'll get back in good graces? <laughs> or is it like there there's like an actual thing that happened as you were going through this, right, where you got reconnected? No, it's more like, you know, really knowing that you're not in control. And that's kind of comforting knowing that you're not in control of the situation. That gave me a lot of comfort. Yeah. I really didn't understand that before, but now I know. Yeah. You know, you don't have control. How did you and are you handle, like, how do you handle the stress? Like, how does it affect your business? Yeah, that's the funny thing. 2019, my best big, best year. Interesting. Best year. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Which is pretty wild to yeah. think about it. But I did a lot remote. I was remote before remote was cool. <laughs> So that's silver lining. Yeah, thanks God for electronic. Yeah, communication. Communication. <laughs> and then what about like impact on your family? Because you have a big family, like you have four kids? Three. Two. Two just kids. Two. No, they're just pretty quiet about it. It's not really discussed. Mm. It hasn't really been an issue, which is really great. Yeah. You know, like People you ask me that all the time, just like you did. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about and what about with your wife? Did, had had that changed your relationship at all? No, especially like I remember. I mean, not at all, not at all in the same vein. But I do remember because I not much has happened to me. But when I was giving birth, right, and my husband's like, "You're so helpless because you're the one going through it. You're the one doing everything. Yeah. There's nothing I can do except watch you be in pain, watch you stress, watch right." And then after the first kid, it was a very long, it was fine, but it was a very long delivery. He's like in the fetal position on the daybed sleeping right after it's over. And there's a photo of it. <laughs> there's photographic evidence. And he's like, I can't explain to you how exhausting it is being like, which we can laugh about now, but I, I kind of get it. Like if you're the one in it and it's you're dealing with it, like I could see it being really hard for your spouse, like trying to be there in a supportive way and then stressing out and being scared like those are hard things were you guys able to talk about it pretty openly I was just trying to figure it out yeah even within yourself trying to figure it out so being yeah. able to talk about it or communicate about it does it doesn't make... come up at the dinner table a lot <laughs> yeah If you'd like to advertise with Relatable, please email us at info at tfreemanassociates.com. So how are you feeling about it now? Do you feel optimistic? Are you, yeah, you, I feel very optimistic, especially, but, you know, you don't know the turns it's going to take. Right. The progress made with prostate cancer in the last three years is huge. Yeah. And it's all, after this shot wears off, there's a second line of defense. But you can't get to that until they see that you're resistant to the mm -hmm. shot, which kind of stinks. But there's like eight different things now that you can do. So That's pretty, comforting. Yeah. Pretty optimistic. That's good. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's not easy uh, to talk about, I'm sure. But I think being able to, <laughs> being able to share that, like, I, that's the thing about having this podcast the hope is that people listening right that may have be at a similar crossroads or be going through it something similar that they can hear someone else their story and maybe learn from it or feel not feel alone basically in it yeah so you being vulnerable doing that is really nice so i appreciate that so i just have a few more questions if you're up for it sure, <laughs> sure. when we talked a little bit about this before, but when I think about your business and I think about other people that are interested in being a financial advisor or maybe they're mid-level, like mid-career at this point, when you, in terms of creating that pipeline and that funnel, what are some of the things that you have done that you have found to be successful and that are, if people want to start doing this or they want to start building that pipeline, like what are the best ways to create that? Well, people approach me, and uh, clients do that too. They say, I want to become a financial advisor. And they're thinking about the actual investments and the actual end result. 
And as I mentioned to you before, it's all about the front end. It's all about the relationships you build with other professionals and putting yourself out there. So you've got to have those skills. You've got to have those soft skills. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> so important. Uh, it's all about communication skills. If you don't have that, then it's not going to happen. You've got to be able to set appointments, uh, to meet new people, be able to keep that going. Do you go to, like, maybe not as much now, but at some point, like networking groups where you go to situations where you're either going to find people that are in similar similar lines of business, right, where you, to your point where either you, you start to connect on, like, if you get some and you can't handle it, you'll give it to me. There's that. But it, then is there also, like, going to places or creating connections where, you know, you said the small to mid business is, is your sweet spot and so figuring out ways to I hate this word but but like penetrate that market right like you're being creative and thoughtful is it that intentional yeah but it's really just putting yourself out there and so people describe it as circles putting yourself out in different circles to have variety and is that part of your daily routine you know you said you were like you have processes and daily things that you do so is there certain things in your daily activities that like you're like I need to meet you know with these three or four people like right you're you're yeah. actively planning and doing that yeah a couple every week comes a couple networking opportunities every yeah week. what about rejection what can you say about that because I suspect you've been rejected it's not all green grass and lollipops and rainbows right yeah but again you go back to the funnel you gotta you gotta trust the process it's all about the process I, when I put these opportunities in my database, I put a certain time period, and when it hits that time period, I drop them off. Mm. So it's really important. It's hard to do. Like if you have a goal a where period. you want it to be with that client, and it's not there, you stop yeah. spending time in that with that with that relationship, so yeah. to speak. I've heard advisors say they call them and say, "I'm going to close your file," <laughs> and sometimes that gets them motivated uh, to do something. Interesting. So do you say on the rejection side of things, you said you just kind of, like, it almost seems to me, and maybe it's, you don't take that in, right, personally. Because I think that's a huge piece of being an entrepreneur, yeah. putting yourself out there. I mean, certainly for us, like, and for me, like, my name's on everything, right? So now it's just constantly me putting myself out there in all of these ways that, frankly, don't always materialize into the things that I wanted to. But because I believe so passionately about what I'm doing, I'm willing to continue to take those hits, which doesn't always feel good. Yeah. So would you say that's similar for you? Like you can withstand the hard times or the rejections because you know ultimately it's going to work out. Yeah. And just over the years, you know that you trust in that process. Yeah. But that's the most frustrating thing is when I get some people calling in and wanting to meet with me just because they've seen something online and so they meet with me and they, the trust isn't there usually someone's referred me personally and if it's from another professional like an attorney or a CPA it's a very warm person right but then I meet with these other people that just see something online my name and then they meet with me cold the trust it takes a while to build that trust yeah so that's the whole thing judging that and the validity of that opportunity, right? Yeah. It's interesting you say that, and I, this is kind of just two more questions. One is around like the soft skills, you mentioned it in communication, but I do think one of the things I talk a lot about and I teach a lot to younger people all the way through entry-level talent is how that power of that first introduction and how do you make that matter and how do you prepare yourself for that? And I think to build trust, there are these components of communication like active listening and other things that you have to do in order for that to be meaningful. So for you and your line of work, I mean, so much of it is about relationships. If you had to like pick one or two from a soft skills perspective that you think someone that wants to pursue this line of work, what do they need? You've heard the old ads, be a good listener. Yeah. I just always remember this manager having a book about being curious. And he had a Curious George book on his deck, on his uh, little table. Really? And it, I just thought that was so clever, and it just it just resonated with me. Be curious. 
uh, and I always tell my kids when we go to somebody's house, be curious, you know, ask about them, yeah. give sincere uh, compliments. So sincere compliments and being curious about them, it's just being a good communicator too. Yeah. And that, even though that's a personal thing, that's in business, it's the same thing. Right, right. For sure. And so for that one where you're cold, right, where you don't know them, you're probably doing a little research before you're going into that conversation so that that version of compliment, right, whatever it is, you, you can make some sort of inroads by explaining that you know a bit about them and you're... Just asking about them. Right. Really. Right. And being curious. All right. And then the last thing is just around young Greg. So everything that you've been through to date which is a lot in terms of your journey, both career and personal, what advice would you give young Greg? Was there anything that happened that kind of shaped your interests or what you wanted to do later? Yeah, that's why I mentioned sports to you because it all comes back to my sports as a youth. I was forced, we didn't have a choice growing up. My father said, pick a sport every season. You had to play a sport. Mm -hmm. There was no choice. And all my brothers were really good athletes. So you had to play a sport every, that's a lot of sports. Yeah. And swimming, we had a local pool that we, at Chesterbrook Pool. Yeah. And we could walk there. So we lived there. All six of us were lifeguards and then assistant manager. Nice. And so all my older brothers and sister were there. So I just lived there year, year after year, summer after summer. I became a really good swimmer. And I always reflect back on that. Did you swim in high school? I should know this, but I don't. Yeah, know. just a couple of years. I kind of, I kind of burned out. Um, but I swam all year round from ages seven to sixteen. Really? And then baseball? Did you play baseball, or did you just hang out with baseball people? <laughs> I transitioned to lacrosse. Okay. See, I said I thought it was lacrosse. Too. I couldn't remember. You played that all four? No, two years after swimming in high school. I all four years oh. across. And then when you went to college, did you want to play a sport, or was it like you? Did you think about that? I went to Mount St. Mary's to play lacrosse. I did not know that. Yeah, I was recruited by that coach. He said he could get me in, which I think was that that hard to get into. <laughs> but I was like, yes, I was one of the best players in the area. You know, feeling good about myself. Then went out to college, and I was second tier. I was not even at the level. I mean, I got in a little bit, and that's it. So that was a huge learning experience. And um, how did you? That's and given like your family members having a lot of athletes too, I'm sure is hard, right? And you're the youngest. So how did you? Did you have to redefine yourself, like in terms of kind of who you are at that point? If that, if you're not sports, like kind of who are you? Because you had you kind of yeah. Yeah. That's a good way. Did you have any help with that, or did you just sort of figure it out? No, I just had to figure it out. Find other interests? I mean, is that part of it? Like, find other ways to funnel that energy? Yeah, and I wish I would have done more with it academically, treated academics like a game. You know, thinking back, if I would have treated academics like a game in high school, I would have really excelled. Mm -hmm. I have this theory that based in nonsense, but it's just a theory that at some point in your life, so for me too, right, I I wasn't necessarily (laughs) studious in high school, and at some point it catches up and you have to put in the work to get to that next level or whatever it is that you want to do. So if you sort of bail on the high school, right, because there's skills and capabilities in the way that you organize your time and the way that, to your point, like, thinking about something or how you approach something. And if you did it in high school, you're kind of ahead of the game and then you're off and running when you get to that next milestone and then you use that milestone, right? And so I was like 10 years or eight years behind a lot of my friends who were super strong academically and had kind of figured that out early. Uh, Now the cool thing is, this is the great story about hard work and grit, you know, I've leapfrogged some of those people because ultimately I figured out what worked for me and that hard work and grit you can't replace. So the academics didn't come easy to me or in that in that constructive high you know, higher ed. I mean I did better in college, but 
you know, you can't you can't replace the other stuff. So the fact that you were saying, yeah, I wish I had learned it or thought about it more as a game, and you could have excelled at the same time. You kind of were at a crossroads, and then it became important, and then you figured it out, and you're a success. And maybe it wouldn't have happened that way if you had. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think about my theory? I know it's repetitive, but it's, again, trust the process. Have a routine, have a process. And that's something that, you know, that's a lifelong thing. Do you think that's where the sports came in? The sports, obviously, you know, that that creates a lot of routine. Like, if you're doing a sport every season, you're certainly practicing so many times a week, right? And then it puts structure into your life in a way where you have to figure out where all the things fit. So when you talk about process, what... And maybe you have, like, I know you had talked about this before with me, like, is there something you've read or is there anything around, like, rituals or processes or activities that people, how do you figure out what the right process is? Well, I think it's more thinking about it as a, that having a competitive spirit. Ah. Being competitive and treating every day as a game, every week as a game. So having numbers to shoot for, that's key. Having the numbers to shoot for. So you have a metric that you're trying to hit. And then the game is, here are the five things or the seven things I'm going to do to try to hit that metric. Yeah. And then I'm going to be accountable to those things because I'm doing these daily activities that are going to get me to accomplish those things. And then two weeks out, you either met your metric or you didn't. And if you didn't, then you go back to it and try to figure out what you need to do to get the metric. Right. So that week contest, it's like daily contests and it's like weekly contests. (laughs) Self-inflicted. Like, because it's just you. Like, who's holding you accountable? It's just you, right? Well, I have my assistant checking the numbers with me. Does she hold you accountable? Or is it just an opportunity for you to be, just by meeting with her? Yeah, I bounce it off business coaches too. So I still look for coaches. Yeah. That's always good. Yeah. But I, I force her to make me accountable. <laughs> it's good. You, yeah. you need that. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah. It was good to have you. Thanks. Thank you, Greg Clow. I really enjoyed our discussion. While I'm sure it was difficult at times to talk about really personal matters, I so appreciate your openness and honesty. It was really nice to hear about your dad's story and hear how you were able to bond with him uh, before his passing. And I also learned a lot about being an entrepreneur. Your guidance on being a good listener, being disciplined, having a process, and having people hold you accountable. All of that is really helpful. If you are a small to mid-sized business, please check out Greg's company at chainbridgefn.com. That's C-H-A-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E-F-N.com. As always, a big thank you to Missy, the producer on this episode. As a reminder, if you like this discussion, please subscribe, leave comments, and rate Relatable. We can be found on most streaming platforms. Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates. You can follow us on Twitter and the TFA Facebook page. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable.